Good? Very good. All right, good morning again. Welcome to those of you joining us uh, via Zoom or our other online streaming. We're looking at Revelation chapter 1, and we've already spent a couple sessions here. My comment would simply be, can you, can you believe how deep, how complex, how rich this theology is already? And that has the hallmark of John, if you've spent any time with John's gospel. It's one of the ironies we handed out to people sometimes when we, when we want to introduce them to Christianity or introduce them to Jesus, and, and well and good. Uh, I think we do so specifically for those passages like, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, etc., just very clear gospel kinds of pa um, passages. But John's gospel, in that sense, is uh, deceptively uh, rich and um, just multi-multi-layers of theology going on. Uh, obviously, someone inspired by the Holy Spirit, to be sure, but someone who has great, great intelligence and literary genius, and then someone who has taken their time and done things very deliberately, and we see that those, those same type of fingerprint here um, in John, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 1. Now, where we left off was with this almost creedal statement beginning at verse, uh, hmm. sorry, my Bible's got a bunch of notes in it. It looks like verse 5, the latter half of verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Of course, a reference to the cross, and one thing I didn't point out here is that there are some sacramental overtones to be sure that very frequently you see this in John. Um, reference to the blood, while it does take our minds back to the cross, it's not as if it takes our minds back to the cross in exclusion to how it is that that blood comes to us namely in the cup of the Lord, where he says, take, drink, this is the New Testament in my blood. And so um, we, we simply don't want to miss that aspect. And then where he goes next in verse 6, this has baptismal uh, tones to it and, and made us a kingdom, that making us into something we are by nature not. That language is baptismal language. So he makes us a kingdom, um, you know, members, members of those, who, you know, who are, we who are under his reign. And you can, you can think back to John 3, you know, whoever is not born from above cannot see the kingdom. Whoever is not born of water and the spirit cannot enter the kingdom. And so here to see the kingdom, to enter the kingdom, to be made a kingdom, it's baptismal language. So I simply point that out because I think I failed to do so last week. Yet one more layer here is the sacramental layer. Um, Thus also priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then verse 7, Behold, he is coming uh, with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Um, what I want to do is just look at Zechariah with you real quick. We're going to look at a, a number of Old Testament texts today that kind of sit underneath this part of Revelation. And we're going to see too that John's way of doing theology in Revelation is really from the Old Testament text. Um, I, and by that I mean the whole Old Testament, various uh, books within the Old Testament. This is really the source of his theology. Um, Zechariah is one 
place where this is, is fairly clear and, and fairly important. We'll be turning to Zechariah a few times throughout our study. Um, I've got to find it, of course. And likewise, we'll be taking a look at uh, Daniel today, too, as a text that sort of is found right underneath. There it is. Okay, um, it, let's look at Zechariah, and let's look at chapter 12. You know, this will also give us a flavor for the apocalyptic genre. Let's, let's, uh, I guess let's just pick up chapter 12, verse 10 of Zechariah. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So this obviously having to do directly with Christ, and specifically when Christ is pierced. But what I don't want you to miss is verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Okay, Keep in mind that pouring out, that language of pouring out and the connection with um, him being pierced. It climaxes. We'll see this. So they will look on him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. Now, Megiddo is a, is a location that symbolically factors into Revelation. In fact, it's where we get the word Armageddon. You can hear Megiddo in there. And so, again, here too, just in a sort of offhanded way, we can see the, the world in which uh, Revelation is making its commentary, or the text from which it's choosing to speak and, and weave its theological tapestry. Verse 12, The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. And here's the key. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So you can see then Zechariah's uh, prophetic utterance here. And really it's, it's Jesus himself speaking. I mean, you get that, you get that for example, um, Back in verse 10, it looks like, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. So in the piercing of Jesus, in his own receiving him not, in his own putting him to death, and this great act of their evil, which 
then you know you have crucified the Lord of Glory. You can hear um, you can hear Peter saying on Pentecost. You can hear the three thousand plus being cut to the heart and weeping and mourning and saying, "Brothers, what shall we do?" And what shall they do? According to Peter, be baptized. You see, so now now connect the dots with me. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace so that what is being poured out baptismally is this spirit, capital S spirit, of grace. Be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the promise or the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, that Holy Spirit is given um, through the piercing of Jesus. And so you can think of this in a couple of different ways. In John's Gospel, when, when Jesus is crucified, the final thing he does is hands over his spirit. Okay. Um, John continues this theology that shortly after he hands over his spirit, then he is pierced. Jesus' side is pierced, and, and from out of his side flow blood and water. And we talked about that last week, how that's the how that's the church, that's the, those are the things that um, make for the church in the same way that Adam is put into sleep and from his side comes Eve, Christ is put to sleep and from his side comes the church. But when they pierce him, from his side flows water and blood. And look at that language um, in chapter 13, verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So this flood that comes from his side, this fountain that is opened and, and pours out from his side, cleanses us of our sins. Again, and, a, and is accompanied by the Holy Spirit. So this is all baptismal language, of course, but it's, it's exactly as John says, it's flowing from the cross forth. And so while there's weeping and wailing, even so, on the part who receive this grace, on the part who are cleansed by his blood, who believe in him, um, this is the yes and amen that we then see back in, in Revelation uh, verse 7 at the very end. So yes and amen. So I simply point that out. Um, and as we go back to these texts, we're just not going to be able to spend much time with them or do any interpretation on them like Zechariah or, um, or we'll go to a different part of Zechariah. We'll go to a couple different places in Daniel. As soon as we start interpreting those, we'll find that there's interaction with the other prophets and we'll find that there's heavy reliance on the Torah. And so there's layer upon layer of meaning here. So we're just going to grab at the one layer, try to see what Revelation is working with directly and not go any deeper than that, lest we go into kind of a, an infinite regress and not get anywhere at all. Um, so back to, uh, back to Revelation. I hope that that then suffices for some of that. You can see the prophetic utterance of him whom they will pierce. And then you can see what John is here bringing to mind. Um, Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And then, again, not even so, amen, like, like, well, that's bad, but okay, let's get on with it anyway. But no, rather triumphantly, yes, and amen. All right, verse 8, we have a direct speech. We have to take a moment and figure out who this direct speech is by. I am the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God. And 
What's hidden to us there is the Greek construction, which is in perfect accord with uh, the Septuagint. The Septuagint, that's the Greek Old Testament. So um, there and here, kurios ha theos, um, literally, woodenly, Lord the God. That is the phrase that the Septuagint uses to replace the Hebrew Yahweh. So when it's picked up by John here and replicated in the Greek, we can read here Yahweh. I am the Alpha and the Omega says Yahweh. That's, that's what's going on here. Who is and who was and who is to come. Now, we know back from verse 4 that this is a reference to the Father, and so it becomes clear that it is the Father speaking in this verse. The one who is and who was and who is to come. And again, is to come in English is a little more future tense than it actually is in Greek. It would be more like the coming one, the perpetually coming one. And this is an aspect of theology that, again, that is a New Testament theology that is really rich, and really difficult to wrap your mind around, but, and, I, and I, won't, I won't try to make the case here, but the simple fact is we've been in the last days from the ascension of Jesus to the present, and in these last days Jesus is accessible to us by virtue of word and sacrament in the very same way he's been accessible to Christians of all times and all places. So it, it totally negates the importance of historical time and in fact replaces historical time with the imminence of Jesus Christ revealing himself to us, present tense, in word and sacrament, just as he did for the disciples on the road to Emmaus, where he opened their minds and ca caused them to see and understand that the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures in particular, in that instance, speak of him. And then he revealed himself or made himself known to them in the breaking of the bread. And this is, this is then precisely how he is on account of his ascension. He ascends, he's enveloped in the clouds. This is temple imagery. The, temple, the, the way to enter into the temple is through his flesh and blood sacramentally, through the word of the scriptures. Um, this is how we encounter Christ. And then again, the, the historical, like, sort of chronology or linear way of looking at things um, just isn't of, that, isn't of that much importance. I mean, it only is in, 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 the, in the great big picture sense of that, yes, will come to an end. But it's not as if we are at, it's not as if, boy, if I was back in the first century, I really would have gotten this. Um, no, the disciples were back in the first century, and they didn't get it, and they only got it when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them, and as they studied the scriptures and partook of the sacrament, so they found Christ in the scriptures, and he revealed himself to them in the breaking of the bread, and thus they became the theologians that penned the New Testament. And so, so we too have this same access to Christ. All right, anyway, all that to say, when you read that language of who is to come, 
understand that it's much more rich and much more profound. It's the ever-coming one. And yes, he will have the final coming, the parousia, the second coming, and that kind of like, as he went up, so he shall return, like that final coming. There's no doubt about it. But he's the perpetually coming one. And here, in reference to the Father, um, who comes to us in the, per, you know, represented in the person of his Son, and then the, uh, the Pantocrator, the, the Almighty, as it is in English. And you'll see that, that language, uh, Pantocrator, in, the, uh, in a lot of the iconography of the church, especially that of the East. It's a very common title. Okay, so you have this back and forth. Again, the setting is liturgical. That's demonstrated in verse 3, and it's going to be demonstrated again in the next section. And you have this sort of back and forth. You have this kind of doxology and conversation. And um, you can see, again, back in verse uh, 5, to him who loves us, you know, it's, it's, a, it's the expression directed at Christ directly, and then the Father responds, I am the Alpha and the Omega, etc., Okay, so on to verse 9, where we've got two things happening, and we're going to pay much more attention to one. Well, we could pay attention to both. Um, the two things happening are the vision of the Son of Man, and then the Son of Man um, ordaining or commissioning uh, Daniel. Those are the two, or excuse Daniel, um, John. Those are the two things going on. He's commissioning or ordaining John, and I suppose the import of that is that John, underst John understands what's happened to him in the vision as being what happened to the prophets of old. So he sees himself standing in the line of the prophets. Um, Isaiah 6, we could look at, for example, the vision of the, uh, of the throne and the cherubim, and, and he kneels before the Lord, and the Lord you know, cleanses his lips and sends him out uh, to speak prophetically. So there's a commissioning of Isaiah. We'll see a commissioning in Daniel and that's very similar to this one here. And the, so the key point of the commissioning of John is that John is entirely aware that he's, that he's writing Scripture. John is entirely like self-aware that the same Holy Spirit who inspired the prophets of old is inspiring him. And the same one, namely Christ, who came face to face with the prophets of old has now come face to face with him. And he is, as it were, putting the capstone on that, on that, uh, on that prophetic witness. Sometimes the point is overstated that John, was the, that John the Baptist is the last in the line of the prophets. That's certainly true from a vantage point, and I don't want to take anything away from that as such. But there are other vantage points. And John is bringing us another vantage point right here, that the prophetic witness is fulfilled in himself as he uh, reveals Christ. Right in the way of the climax of all the prophetic scriptures. So that's probably what's going on here. Now, then, the primary thing that we will be spending our time looking at is not so much that, but rather, having said that, we'll delve into and really focus on this vision of the Son of Man, as it's called. Before we get there, verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation 
and the kingdom and the patient endurance in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, to whom is John speaking? That's indicated back in verse 4, to the seven churches that are in Asia, the sevenfold church. So he is writing to them as their brother, as their partner. Now, this is a little bit unusual language. Uh, Soon koinonos. So koinonia is that word that really gets translated down into English as communion. So your your fellow communer, (laughs) Um, which is certainly true in terms of receiving the body and blood of Christ. And then in receiving that body and blood of Christ as a fellow communer with you, he become he is and becomes a fellow communer in these other things. And now, not so, not so clear, elegant in English as it is in the in the Greek. He is a fellow communer in uh, in tribulation. Um, now look at this grammatically. So you're going to say in tribulation in the kingdom, which is really properly understood as reign. Over and against the reign of Satan, you have the reign of Christ. So the tribulation, the reign, and the patient endurance, which is just one word in Greek, and it's that it's that ever it's that ubiquitous New Testament word for faithful endurance, just over and over in the New Testament. This is all it is. It's like just endure, right? Um, And then look, in English it says, that are in Jesus. But what is in Jesus? Um, I think in English it lends itself to just the patient endurance which is in Jesus. But that's not not right. All three of these refer to in Jesus. So he is a soon koinonos, a fellow partaker or partner in the tribulation in Jesus, in the reign or the kingdom in Jesus, and in the patient endurance in Jesus. All of, this is a threefold sort of treatment of what it means to be a Christian. To be in Jesus is to have tribulation. Why? Because Christ is the crucified one. To be a Christian is to take up your cross and be a crucified one. Life then is understood as suffering, as tribulation, as Good Friday, as death. Um, you know, death before life, Good Friday before Easter. Tribulation that will be, that is already, and yet will be replaced with manifest glory. Patience that will have its, an endurance that will have its reward. Okay, so... Um, this, this just foundational, again, in John's way of what seems to be rather off the cuff certainly isn't. This is what it means to be a Christian. Tribulation in Jesus, the reign or kingdom in Jesus, the patient endurance in Jesus. Uh, John locates himself on Patmos, which, um, as with this and with the historical locations of the seven churches, what you find is a whole lot of, of historical information that is... Um, kind of conjecture, especially insofar as like what what is what is John or, or Jesus to be more specific 
penned Jesus' words to these churches, penned through John, what does that actually have to do with the historical circumstances? This gets quite a bit overplayed in treatments of Revelation. And any familiarity with multiple commentaries will suddenly show to you that there are multiple takes. There's, in other words, it's, it's quite speculative, and I don't find it very fruitful. It's sort of like, I mean, if 2,000 years from now, people were finding out about our church in Capistrano Beach, and they were like, oh, Disneyland is nearby. I bet this whole thing was written as a contrast to Disneyland. And you're like, um, maybe, kind of, sort of, like way out there. Um, you know, so there's this problem with sitting 2,000 years outside of history and way far away from a place and trying to pick land maps from landmarks from Ephesus or Smyrna or Philadelphia and then reconstruct these letters as if they're speaking to those specific landmarks or things. It's like, how do we know that? So the same is true with Patmos and some of the ink that's spilled on Patmos. The bottom line is the text just really doesn't tell us very much in and of itself, and the rest tends to be contradictory and tends to be conjecture in terms of the way that commentators try to use and explain it. So I'll just stick with the basics, and that'll be true not only with my treatment of the historical geographical place of Patmos, but then likewise with uh, the seven cities um, in which the seven churches are. Patmos, about, about the most we know of it, is that it was indeed a place of exile. It was a populated place. Um, some people think that John had his revelation in a cave and wrote his revelation in a cave. Well, that may or may not be true. Um, we just don't have much information. What we do know is that it's not sort of like this deserted, ascetic island where there's just nothing but sand and maybe a few skeletons and there's John. It's, it's populated. He's put there as a punishment. Um, is he in some sort of uh, a camp or prison or work camp? I mean, we really don't know any of these things. Um, so he, when he simply says uh, that he was um, on the island called Patmos, we know very little concretely that isn't up for debate. We do know, as he says next, he is there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, that word and doesn't necessarily mean something additionally. Um, there's, there's a, it's called the ex-epigetical chi in Greek, and it's, that and can indicate just the restatement of the thing that went before. So here, the word of God, namely, or that is, the testimony of Jesus, the, the witness of Jesus. And there is that language of martyr. Wherever you see testimony or witness in English, almost certainly what's underneath it is martyr. And you remember back to uh, verse 5 where Jesus Christ is described as ha martus, the martyr. And thus we are all martyrs underneath him, witnesses underneath him, witnesses faithful even unto death. That's the goal. So John is there um, for the uh, word of God and the, the testimony of Jesus. That, curiously, is the same phrase he uses back in verse 2, if you noticed. John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all he saw. So, uh, simply put, John, is in, John has been exiled for preaching the word of God. Um, 
who has exiled him, what is the nature of his exile. We simply don't have any information that isn't contentious and somewhat speculative. Verse 10, John continues, I was, and it says in the spirit, and spirit is capitalized, and that's right, it should be. You should note that that's, that where it's capitalized there and in other places, like what we just saw in Zechariah, it's small. You should realize it's a small s for spirit. You should just know that that's the choice of the editors of your English Bible. So it's, it's up to you, the reader, to be able to discern whether that's small s spirit or capital S spirit. And you discern that on the basis of the context. Here, capital S spirit is exactly right. There is no definite article. I'm not sure it makes that much of a difference. It just reads a little differently. I was in spirit. Obviously, you can supply the definite article. I was in the spirit. I was in spirit does not mean detached from the body as such, um, which it might be the common sort of platonic Western read of it, but that's not what John's saying. In the spirit is very much, if you recall John chapter 4, uh, John's gospel, the fourth chapter, where Jesus... Um, Comes to, the, comes to the well and is there talking with the Samaritan woman. And fascinatingly, Jesus there, although he gets to it all the more in, say, for example, John 7, but there in John 4, Jesus talks about um, living water coming forth from him. In the preceding section, he connects that with the Holy Spirit. So here, too, you can tie this, you can tie in Jesus' discourse there with what was prophesied in uh, Zechariah, that he is going to be the source of a living, cleansing water. John makes it clear in his context that that's the Holy Spirit at the end of chapter 3. Jesus pouring out the Holy Spirit um, is really the, you know, and is really the beginning of his conversation with the woman. And then they go on, and I'm oversimplifying this text to be sure, but they go on to discuss uh, where the appropriate worship of God takes place. You remember the Samaritan woman? She says, um, it's on this mount, Mount Gerizim. But you, plural, that is you Jews, say it's in Jerusalem. And Jesus, the climax of this discussion is Jesus says, the day is coming when it will not be on this mountain nor in Jerusalem um, that the Father will be worshipped. But the Father will be worshipped in spirit and truth. Now, truth is, truth is probably the most thorny to try to figure out in that context what truth is. Of course, we have Jesus before Pilate and Pilate saying what is truth and the truth standing right in front of him. And Jesus in John's gospel saying not only I am the way and the life, but also Jesus saying I am the truth. So we can figure that out. John seems to have that a little bit nuanced, I would say, that the truth is precisely Jesus revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. That's probably even, so, so just answering Jesus is good enough, but John would want you to probably add Jesus revealed, the living one, the living God revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. That's the truth. So to worship the Father in spirit and truth, the only way you can have the spirit and worship the Father in spirit is to be baptized into the spirit to be born of spirit. Remember John te uh, Jesus' teaching in John 3, just a chapter earlier, that which is spirit is spirit. 
So to be born of water and the Spirit is to be Spirit. To be in the Spirit is to be worshiping the God, uh, is to be worshiping God. And so this, this, is what, this is what John is saying here in verse 10. You know, it's not like this platonic thing of like, I left my body, I was floating around in my spirit. That's not right. The capital S here in the ESV, at least, is very helpful. I was in spirit or in the spirit on the Lord's day, which is the eighth day. Um, it was called the Lord's day because it was the day of his resurrection. And that day we, of course, know as Sunday. So to be in the Spirit on the Lord's day is basically saying, I was in church. <laughs> now, what was church like in Patmos? Who knows? Um, were there other Christians there? We would assume so, um, based on this. Whatever the case may be, uh, John tells us plainly that the context of this revelation is the divine service, as we Lutherans would call it, or the Mass, as the Book of Concord would call it. Um, it is church. And so, too, then, we can see the liturgical flavor for this. And, you know, maybe it gives you hope that as you're sitting through church and if the sermon is stretching on, you know, and it's getting to be a little long, a little tedious, a little boring, you can, you can recall in your mind's eye the revelation of Jesus Christ given to us by John, and you can begin to picture these things for yourself in the sanctuary. You, know. um, you can see uh, the Lamb of God in the midst of the throne as you look upon the crucifix. And you can see his blood poured out for the many as you see right below the crucifix the altar upon which we have the bread that is his body and the wine that is his blood, etc. So, yeah, here's your, uh, here's your leap-off point. It's okay to daydream in church. <laughs> As long as it's theological. <laughs> All right, so verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice. Uh, it's described as a trumpet, like a trumpet. So otherworldly, I mean loud, bold, but what is a voice like a trumpet? So already we're, we're getting kind of this otherworldly thing. Not saying, uh, of course, as John's receiving this vision, like picture it, you know, there you are in church and behind you comes this voice. Uh, it's like a trumpet. You don't know to whom the voice belongs. And it's, there's, there's a little bit of a shock and drama even as, you, even as you hear this text or read this text that's left out because the English editors have already put it in red print for you. But this word, this great voice, this megaphone, and this sound that sounds like a trumpet, um, it's not clear right away that this is Jesus. Not as John received it, and not as we would receive it in hearing it. Write what you see in a book, a biblios, which of course can also mean a scroll, and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. As we go through each of the letters, then, um, I'll spend just a little time, you know, maybe a brief paragraph or so um, on each of those cities. But like I said before, that's, that's about all we're going to do. So this loud voice, like a trumpet, says, write what you see. Okay. And then what's going to transpire, of course, is this vision this vision and visionary experience that John has, and he's going to write it. 
And then the, what, we, what we also glimpse here is that the whole of Revelation is given to these churches. So each introductory letter serves the specific circumstances of each church, but the whole letter, the whole Revelation is meant for them. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then those churches are named. Okay, verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Again, it's kind of strange language, but this voice is coming from behind. In terms of its occurrence, John doesn't yet know who this voice belongs to, and he turns backward to see this voice. Okay, so he turns backward to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw, so here, if you will, is, is you know, the beginning of the vision proper, although, of course, I would argue and have argued that the entire prologue heretofore has been one that we are encouraged to envision and imagine in our mind's eye. But here, then, if you were to try to locate where does the, where does the vision proper begin, um, I think you could certainly point to this verse because he turns to see the voice that was speaking and on turning I saw. Now what does he see? He sees seven golden lampstands. Okay, so you want to picture seven golden lampstands in your mind. Now you also uh, because you know that this is the apocalyptic genre, you kind of want to pay attention to where in the immediate context or in the larger context of Revelation, this seven has been used before this number seven has been used. And of course, your mind probably goes immediately to verse four. The seven spirits who are before his throne. Good. Now we're thinking in the way of uh, Revelation in the way of the apocalyptic genre. So you'll see the connection between these seven golden lampstands and the seven spirits before we're done. But that's how you want to start thinking. So he turns and he sees seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, because the lampstands are introduced first, we may as well go back to Zechariah and just glimpse the biblical context, again, when John opens his Bible and th is thinking about lampstands, he's thinking about Zechariah. So let's go back again to Zechariah. This time we'll go back to an earlier chapter. Uh, chapter 3 is what we want. Okay, now interesting here, because if you just go to chapter 3 and you just look at the heading of Zechariah chapter 3, you're going to see a vision of Joshua, the high priest. Now Joshua, of course, as you probably know, that name in Hebrew is exactly the name Jesus. Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua, and Joshua in Hebrew is Yeshua. So where you see Joshua, you have a linkage with the name of Jesus. You have a type of Christ in one way, shape, or form. All right? So this is, now what's happening historically, of course, here is you have 
the temple, the, the first temple, Solomon's temple, was destroyed in 586 by the Babylonians. 586, yeah, and then, and then um, it's going to be rebuilt. And they're talking about its rebuilding. That's Zechariah and a lot of these later prophets. That's what they're up to. Zechariah's right in this time frame. Daniel's right in this time frame. Uh, Ezekiel's right in this time frame. And the problem is you've got to like, like how are we going to do this? We don't have a high priest. And so, so this is like the vision of Joshua, the high priest. And, and so like that's the theology is how do we get a high priest? And beautiful, fantastic theology that ultimately points us to the true Yeshua, Jesus, um, high priest after the order of Melchizedek, the only one who can fulfill this role. And in fact, it's Jesus who shows up and makes this historical person, Joshua, uh, worthy to reconstitute sort of the temple worship um, at the second temple that then goes all the way up until the, up until the time of Jesus, uh, his incarnation, and the destruction of that temple then in 70 AD. So that's kind of what's going on here, a very rich theology in its own right. But what I want to do is, um, well, let's simply pick up at chapter 3, verse 6. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch, for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Okay, so a lot going on here. We're not going to be able to flesh it all out, but as you can see, I will bring my servant, the branch. Those are two names for Christ. And then behold on the stone that I have set before Joshua. I mean, that stone ultimately is going to be Christ, and it's going to be the stone that the builders rejected that has become the, the cornerstone. Okay. And then, but look at this, I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes. Now keep that in mind because as we get to the Lamb of God, we're going to find that the Lamb of God has seven eyes. And here Jesus described as a stone is a stone of seven eyes. Later in one of the, um, in one of the letters to the churches, I forget which off the top of my head right now, but there's this promise that, um, of, a, of a special stone that will be received. And what we're going to do is like, if you look at biblical commentary, nobody has any idea what's, uh, what's being spoken of exactly, um, but it is probably uh, part reference to here in Zechariah and also to that theology of us being living stones uh, being built up into the temple of God uh, with Christ Jesus. Yeah, I'm trying to glance ahead and we'll just, we'll just have to come back to that when we get to um, yeah, when we get to that bit in the letters about the stone, have this in mind. So, uh, you know, I said, mm. 
Thought I saw it. Oh, Pergamon. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, Pergamon. Okay, thank you so much. So, um, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So where this stone just appears out of nowhere, um, one of the things that we ought to see John interacting with is this stone in Zechariah 3, a single stone with seven eyes. And notice that that stone is set before Joshua, in one sense, given to him. Okay. And so, you know, that, that seven, you know, in, in that letter to Pergamum, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. We'll, we'll get into that. Um, but one possibility is that that stone is Jesus himself. Okay. Um, now, let's just go back to Zechariah 3 and keep moving along. All right. Um, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Obviously, that's a reference to Good Friday. The iniquity of the land is removed in a single day. Okay, let's carry on to verse 4, which is going to get us to where we want to go with the golden lampstands. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. Now, you don't have to remember this, but later on we're going to talk about these lamps, and we're going to talk about the two witnesses, and the two witnesses as being two olive trees. Later in Revelation, those of you who have read it before and are familiar with it, this is where they come from. We're going to return to this section and see that this is where John is getting the theology of the church and the two witnesses, that is, the lampstand and the two olive trees next to it. It's coming from Zechariah. So there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by my might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amidst shouts of grace, grace to it. Well, we could go on there, and it's, it's certainly um, fascinating. But one, I mean, one thing I will... Oh, boy... Yeah, just skip over. No, I can't do it. Let's just let's go really fast, verse 8 and following. I just want to get you to this one part. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Here's the key. These seven 
are the seven eyes of the Lord which range throughout the whole earth. Okay. Then I said to him, what are, these all, uh, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lamp stamp stand? And uh, we're just going to pause there because that's going to go into the next question, like who are the two witnesses? But for our purposes right now, we want to know about this lamp stand. And this sevenfold lamp stand um, is described here. So the, the seven lamps, now, now what you're picturing here is the lights on top of the lamps. These are the seven eyes of the Lord which range throughout the whole earth. Okay. So what, you, what I kind of explained to you maybe a week or two ago that with John's revelation, what you've got is just layer upon layer upon layer of uh, biblical imagery. That's precisely what's going on with the lampstand. Now, we're going to see this all unfold as we progress along. So let's just simply at this point head back to Revelation with that understanding that when John sees seven golden lampstands, uh, he's seeing something that Zechariah saw. And it gives us this interpretive layer through which we're going to understand the rest. We're oddly, we've got, we've got two other data points. We've got these seven golden lampstands, and earlier we've got the seven spirits. And then Zechariah has told us that these seven lampstands, particularly now I think we're envisioning the flames on the lampstands, that these are seven eyes of the Lord that go throughout the whole earth. So we've, got, we've already got two layers added on to this image of the golden lampstands. Like I said, this is going to find a beautiful resolution. But we're just, we're not there yet. Now, verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstands, okay, and this is, you know, this is one of the challenging things. Are these lampstands interconnected? Kind of like maybe like a menorah? Or are they independent? Well, who knows? But the one here, um, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So that's important because in the midst of the lampstands is this one who is like a son of man. Okay. Let's, just get, let's just get a brief description. He's clothed with a, a long robe. It's actually a robe that goes down to the feet, and this is the technical description of the high priest's robe. So this is a high priestly image. Remember Zechariah, high priest, Joshua, here, Yeshua, high priest, long robe. And with a golden sash around his chest. Now the imagery of golden sash can simply be royalty and is expressive of royalty. So sure, we could see here priest and king, nothing wrong with that. Um, but what we're going to see already is that this talk of the golden sash connects us back to a biblical figure in Daniel. But let's continue. So, again, keep in mind, John is seeing these things. So you're trying to see these things too. Seven lampstands, however you picture that, and in the midst of the lampstands is, uh, is this one, and he's clothed with a long robe down to his feet, and that long robe is high priestly. He has a golden sash that comes down from his chest. It's kingly. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. And those words are reminiscent, by the way, of what the description of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And you remember there were three witnesses of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and 
John, the author of this text. And so no doubt when he turns and looks behind him and sees this figure, it's reminiscent of what he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. All right. <clears throat> so the hairs on his head are white, like white wool, like snow. Now listen to this, and this will connect a dot for you. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Remember back in Zechariah, the connection with the lampstands, okay? They're described as the eyes of the Lord. His eyes are a flame of fire. Now here to be sure, we're envisioning two eyes because he's one like the Son of Man. But we're going to expand this out to where this same figure is going to end up with seven eyes. But here in this imagery, he is the one like the Son of Man, that is very plainly one like a human being. In fact, this language you know, it begins really with Ezekiel, that he is described as the Son of Man, and one like the Son of Man becomes one who is like a human being but not. And we're going to see that next week as we delve into uh, Daniel 7, the text that really um, supports and is underneath this text. Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 10, those are the two. But again, picture this. So long priestly robe, golden sash, hairs on his head, white like wool, like snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze, which conjures up two things. In the first place, this is like highly polished bronze, so beauty. We might even think like, how beautiful are the feet of those who come to bring good news, and here is the messenger of good news, and so the one with beautiful feet. That's true. And the imagery, though, in the apocalyptic genre of like metal feet or bronze feet is specifically one of power. Not only immovability, but crushing enemies underneath. And so that imagery is also very much here in the uh, feet that are like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Um, refined in a furnace, of course, that's indicative of the Christian life. It's indicative of the fiery trial that this one has gone through um, himself. And so to be sure there are further symbolic elements to be drawn out of this in accord with the rest of the revelation of Scripture, no doubt about it. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Now, um, Boy, I'm already over time. <laughs> Let's pick up with the roar of mighty waters next week. I'll just give you two things to think about there. In the first place, the, the, this descriptor comes right out of Ezekiel, and it's the voice of the Lord that is described as the roar of many waters. So by John simply saying that his voice sounds like the roar of many waters, he's saying the same guy Ezekiel saw is the guy I'm seeing. That's, that's probably the key point here. Um, but then in terms of the connection between the, the word and the sound of water. Let's get into that a little bit uh, next week because I think, uh, it, while it's a bit speculative, I think that there's some richness there as well. All right, that's where we'll pick up. Thanks for joining us. The Lord be with you.